Good morning. It's good to be with you as we worship our Lord and our Savior in Jesus Christ. What I'd love to do now is to, now in the seventh of an eight-part series with regard to the second coming of Jesus Christ, to once again turn to the book of Zechariah. It's found in the back of our Older Testament. So if it's hard to find, start with Matthew at the beginning of the New Testament, flip back a few pages, you'll find your way there. And we are in the 14th chapter, and we're looking today at verse 8 down through verse 15. And this 14th chapter deals with the battle of Armageddon, a battle still to come. In many ways, Zechariah 12 through 14 is your condensed version of the entire book of Revelation. And so if you're looking for a Reader's Digest version, if you will, of uh, understanding the end times, Zechariah 12 through 14 is a good place to go to, to be able to figure some of this out. What I'd love to begin doing is reading from the 5th century BC prophet Zechariah, verse 8, and I'm simply going to read verses 8 and 9 to help us get some traction in, uh, in this passage of Scripture. Because here you and I find... On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea and half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one and his name one. So we'll be looking at these verses and more. But let's look to our Lord in prayer. All hail King Jesus. That's what this passage of scripture is about as we explore how this relates to our Lord and Savior in both first and second comings and his plan for us. I thank you, Father, that you've got a plan. You have a sovereign purpose. You work it out at the global level. We see all things that are taking place right now in the Middle East as part of the installments that lead to the final installment described here in these verses. Yet you're also working at regional levels, global levels, and I thank you for that. Thank you for the way in which you have used Dick Berenzi through the years. Extraordinary faithful servant has had a global impact as a missionary, now home with you. I can just hear it now. Well done, good and faithful servant. We praise you for that. I thank you, Father, for John for tonight as we gather together and to elect a new senior pastor to take place somewhere in the months to come. That you give extraordinary wisdom as we gather together and as he shares tonight. Minister to him, his family, at his point of need. And we thank you for him. And I thank you for, it's been my privilege to spend 26 of my 27 years here working side by side with him. I'm blessed. So now, Father, we are thankful that you bless us. You bless us through your word. It's timeless and yet timely. And it communicates changeless truths in these changing times. 
And what we want to be able to do is to understand the depth and the breadth of your word. So, Father, warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. We pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. As people watch the news and try to determine where is all this headed? Which is the question of the hour right now in the Middle East. Chosen People Ministries has a, a center now, newly installed right in Tel Aviv, where they can share the gospel with the Jews, Arabs as well. And in one of their recent publications, we were told conversations are going deep very quickly these days. The war leaves people with many big life questions. One of our Israeli staff was talking to her neighbors, Yossi and Shaya. And as they spoke of the difficulties of the war and global anti-Semitism, the conversation turned to internal peace, hope that we can have in the midst of it all. Now, they know about her faith and have had short conversations about Jesus Messiah before, but now maybe it's the war. They're more interested. So, it's not just that being a Jewish follower of Jesus is a religion, but it somehow affects your daily life, they asked. Hmm. Well, our staff missionary talked about having a relationship with God through Yeshua, Jesus. Praying, reading his word, knowing that he is with us in a very personal way. And then she spoke about forgiveness, redemption, eternal life through Jesus, our Messiah. Well, they asked how our staff member came to believe this. And after telling her testimony and reading Isaiah 53 out loud, they said this was really interesting. And they seemed to be open to a new way. Wherever there is turmoil in life, maybe it's at your very personal level. Maybe it's within your own heart, let alone the global level. People need to be open to the way in which God desires to work. You see, are you? Are you open to that? Maybe willing to do what otherwise you wouldn't want to do. But you know what God's word says. Well, here we have a situation now where 5th century B.C. Zechariah the prophet he wants to be able to communicate effectively, clearly, with regard to God's sovereign purposes, to be able to answer the tough questions that people ask about life. Why am I here? Why are things going on the way they're going on? Where does all this lead? What we find here in Zechariah chapter 14 is answers to these critical worldview questions. And what I want to do is to build off of what we covered last week. 
where last week in verses 1, 2, and 3, we examined very carefully, as our insert points out, the conflict being described by God. And then in verse 4 down through verse 7, the conqueror being sent by God. We tie that together now, and we're dealing with the question of where is all this headed? And what I want to do with you is to draw out four significant movements found here in these verses that have direct implications about what Zechariah refers to as that final day, what's coming our way. So we're going to check these out together, and I want to start by looking very carefully with you at verse 8, and notice again the wording that Zechariah utilizes. On that day, he writes, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, and half of them to the western sea, and it shall continue in summer as in winter. He begins on that day, which is a repeated phrase referencing the final days, the days to come. He isn't going to be overly specific as to a particular date and time. What he wants to do is to prepare the readers for what is coming our way, you see, so that we are answering the questions as to who is coming and where is this leading. But then he had something that seizes your attention and grips our attention. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Living waters. Now, whenever you are reading the scriptures, one of the things you want to do in terms of interpretation is to always ask yourself the question, what preceded these words? To put it another way, what is it that the readership should already know about God and what he has already penned regarding himself? Now, Joel was a 9th century B.C. prophet, Zechariah 5th century. Zechariah then would presume that his readership already knows about the writings of Joel. In Joel chapter 3, what you'll find are these words that in that day, same usage of words, in that day the mountains shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the steam, stream beds of Judah shall flow with water. Tie that to what you are reading here, now in verse 8. All the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord, and water the valley of Shittim. What stands out at this point is that we are talking about a region in the world, Middle East, it's arid. Water is hard to come by, so much so that people have to go to great lengths to be able to find water. I was reading in a particular journal, one of the hottest regions on earth is along the Persian Gulf, where little or no rain falls. At Bahrain, the arid shore has fresh water. Yet a comparatively numerous population contrived to live here thanks to the copious springs which break forth from the bottom of the sea. The water is gotten by diving. For you see, the diver sitting on his boat, 
winds a great goat's skin around his left arm, the hand grasping its mouth, then takes in his right hand a heavy stone to which is attached a strong line, and thus equipped, he plunges in, quickly reaches the bottom, instantly opening the bag over the strong jet of fresh water, he springs up the ascending current, at the same time closing the bag and has helped the board where he's in turn able to dispense water to those there. Look at the great lengths they've got to go when you're living in such arid conditions. Now, on that day, living water shall flow out from Jerusalem. And Jesus understood that. The question is, would the Samaritan women do so also? For you see, in John chapter 4, what you will find is that a woman from Samaria came to draw water from Jesus. Draw water, and Jesus said to her, hmm, give me a drink. Now, she was at Jacob's well. Jacob's well. Uh, Jacob would have had to have gone 60 to 100 feet down to be able to extract such water. But now notice here, it's within a well, protected, contained as such. But Jesus sees an opportunity. He takes the timeless and he applies it in a way that's timely. His disciples have gone away, seated by food. The Samaritan woman says to him, how is it that you a Jew, as for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria. Prejudicial barriers are coming down because of Jesus. The Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Classic answer. Jesus in John chapter 4, verse 10 answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Tie that now with what you're reading here in Zechariah. Here you are in the 14th chapter. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. They don't see living waters, so they've got to go with well water. He's saying there's a fresh supply a fresh supply that comes from God. And later on, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, will also pen Revelation, where in chapter 22, verse 1, you and I are informed, then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. So you begin to explore the source of living water, which will be a metaphor for the whole idea of salvation, which is found in a personal relationship with God through the finished work of Jesus Christ, you see, on the cross. He gives you something fresh and new and refreshing to a way in which you nor I can ever possibly appreciate outside of saving faith. What made the deepest impression upon you, asked a friend of Abraham Lincoln one day, when you stood in the presence of the falls of Niagara, greatest of natural wonders, Lincoln paused. He looked up and then said, the thing that struck me most forcibly when I was looking at Niagara Falls, he said, was to ask the question, where in the world did all that water come from?
Now, Jesus has created a question in the mind of the Samaritan woman. What and how and where do I find this living water, a fresh stream, rather than going deep down into the cistern below? And it's found in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, you see. And so out of all that then, what you and I do is we explore very carefully what this means. Because now he's saying in the future, there is going to be environmental changes that occur when our Lord returns. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Not the case at this time. But I want you to get a sense of the geography that's being referenced here in Zechariah chapter 14. Because now he will begin to offer you the extent of half of them to the eastern sea. What's that? The Dead Sea. Half of them to the Western Sea. What's that? The Mediterranean Sea. And then when you say, yeah, but, you know, only in season, right? Uh, God is a four seasons sovereign. Because he goes on to say, it shall continue in summer as in winter. What God does is that he produces change in you personally. What will happen in that final day is there will be changes that take place environmentally suitable for the new heavens and the new earth where all everything comes together and perfected because of Jesus. As the final battle in history is described for you and for me, you note here out of verse eight alone Tying all this together with what we've just covered, the environmental changes that our Lord produces. You done that? Then you're up to verse 9. Because out of verse 9 becomes the second of what I will call the sovereign movements that you and I see in that final day. Not only the environmental changes in verse 8, but now the global kingdom here our Lord governs in verse 9. And so in verse 9, you read, I read, and the Lord, Yahweh, that personal relational name for the sovereign one. The Lord will be king over all the earth, not just in this little region of the Middle East. On that day, to reiterate, the Lord will be one and his name one. So now what you do at this point is that you continue to allow for the scriptures to guide and direct and help us to get a better understanding. And so Zechariah's readership is now thinking about this whole idea of the messianic king. Maybe they would go to Psalm 2, would you? And in Psalm 2, you and I are told in the midst of this global conflict, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision, those, these opponents of his. And then he'll speak to them in his wrath, terrify them in his fury and say, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. And wise men come. They come from the east. And they arrive in what they think would be the place, the natural place for this one born king to be from Jerusalem. Where is he who is born king of the Jews, they ask. 
we've seen star in the east and have come to worship him. Whereby we're told that Herod and all those who served with him were all shook up. This is what happens when sovereignty breaks into your life. God has a way of shaking things up. And right when you think you've got everything mapped out, God breaks in and does something completely different and reorients your entire plan so that it's tied to him. The Lord will be king, you and I are told here, and he is going to be king over all the earth. And you say, Gary, where does all this lead? Well, in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All hail King Jesus, we find ourselves singing. And this is something that those in the colonial period had to grapple with as well. After all, England ruled and King George was on the throne, or was he? For you see, that there was a time that the colonists wanted to make George Washington king. But you know what? He refused. Because George and many of the colonists believed that there was only one king. On April 22nd, 1774, before the Revolutionary War, a reporter was sent. It was sent to George, King George of England. And in it, the governor of Boston, he exclaimed with these words, if you ask an American who is his master, he'll tell you he has none, nor any governor, nor any king, but King Jesus. And so April 1775, when a British major called the colonialists villains and told them, lay down your arms in the name of George, the sovereign king of England, you know what the response was? Quote, we recognize no sovereign here but God, no king but King Jesus. And this is what is being referenced here at this point. And the Lord will be king. No wonder Herod and all his colleagues are all shook up when they're finding out that there's this one who is born king. Herod was made king. Jesus was born king. And where would they go? They would make their way towards Bethlehem. But God had already prepped the soil of Bethlehem, you see, because back in the Old Testament again, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, lo and behold, what you will find with me is that there was one who was out in the fields, who was tending the sheep, and his name was David. And what we find is that of the line of David comes this one, whereby when Joseph and Mary arrived on the scene, they would have to be able to trace their ancestry back. And of course, it takes them right back into the line of David. And here is one from that line who you and I would find that when he would enter into Jerusalem at a future point in time that we will cover, cover on Palm Sunday, John will be speaking that day. And on that particular day, lo and behold, there will be this shout, 
Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, having salvation is he. Humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. And what is fascinating is that in his first coming, he came not on a white horse, which was typically the sign of one who was entering into battle, but on a donkey, the preferred mount of one who was coming in peace. And in the first coming of Jesus Christ, he comes and came in peace. When you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have this shalom within you, peace, that comes through a, a relationship with God through Jesus. But there will be another mount. We're in Revelation chapter 20. I saw heaven open. Behold, a white horse, and not the donkey this time. The one sitting on it's called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And you say, who is he? Well, in Revelation 20, verse 16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has written a name, a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, the one that the wise men recognized in Bethlehem, you see. Phil Wickham, he is our God. This is who he is. He loves us. This is our God. This is what he does. He saves us. He bore the cross, beat the grave. Let heaven and earth proclaim, this is our God, King Jesus. And now what you've done thus far with just two verses is that you have extracted two of the four movements that are referencing that final day you're noticing the environmental changes of verse 8, the global kingdom of verse 9. But we're not done. Make your way now to verse 10, onward to verse 11. And notice thoroughly that as the final battle in history is described for you, for me, for us, note thoroughly the continual security our Lord provides. You're up now to verse 10. And notice that it says here, the whole land shall be turned into a plain. From Geba to Rimon, the south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem shall remain aloft on its site from the gate of Benjamin to the place of the former gate, to the corner gate, and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. And you say, Gary, I could use a visual at this point, okay? We'll provide a visual at this point. Notice that appears on the screen. Because as you look at this, what you will find then is the way in which Jerusalem is, is, is governed, so to speak, in terms of its perimeter by, by gates. And off to the side, in the upper right-hand corner, is a question mark, the Benjamin Gate, because we're still trying to figure out archaeologically if that is the exact location as to where the Benjamin Gate that is referenced here in this passage in verse 10 is to be found. But as you read, you go on then to verse 11. And out of that earthquake we examined last week. Then you ponder with this, with this raising up geographically and topographically of all that occurs here. Verse 11 then tells us, and it shall be inhabited. For there shall never be again 
be a decree of utter destruction, Jerusalem shall dwell in security, which is something that has been lacked up to this point. You're on a tour with me. And now as we're walking the walls, I take you to the East Gate. Look what appears on the screen now. And as we begin to ponder there, Zion Gate. Do you see all the bullet holes all around the gate? You look to the left, look to the right, look above. This has been a place where onslaughts of artillery have continued to be such that you begin to think seriously how threatening it is to live in such a state. No wonder so many people are so insecure, feeling so fearful, and then wondering, is this the extent of it? Where does all of this lead? What's the final outcome? And stunningly, amazingly, Zechariah says it shall be inhabited. There shall never again be a decree of utter destruction. Jerusalem shall dwell in security. And that is what people long for globally, internationally, but also internally within our hearts. And when you put your faith and trust in Jesus, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding Guard your heart, your mind, in Christ Jesus, as we're told in Philippians chapter 4. I'm back to the Chosen People publication. As we serve God's people in Israel, our staff is seeing how he grants us many moments to present the gospel. Our ministry is helping people practically, most importantly, spiritually. Many people in Israel are, are spiritually thirsty now, looking for living water. They're asking many questions about the events in the Middle East. Our staff uses Bible prophecy to explain what's happening. God's plan for the Jewish people to be a blessing to the entire world. As followers of the Messiah, we're messengers of the living God. Jesus, who is born to this world to save humanity, his messengers, we bring his light, love, hope, typically in times of distress, but recently one of our staff received a call from a family who lived in Israel for less than a year. Get this. This family arrived from Ukraine. This Jewish family. After fleeing the war there. But when the war in Israel began, they had many questions about why, what to do, where to go. The big questions people ask. Their friends who came to believe in Yeshua, that's Jesus from Hebrew, through our ministry advised them to talk to our staff. They met several times and our staff explained to them, listen now to this, through scripture, how there will be a time to come when Israel will be the safest place. Tie that to verses 10 and 11 and see how that relates to the one who is the Prince of Peace, Jesus. 
And now you see the third aspect, the third movement, the continual security our Lord provides. And that's why in Psalm 122, verse 6, the appeal is made, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And you do that. You're processing. And now you're ready for the final movement, what I'll call the eventual judgment our Lord assures. It's found in verse 12. You take it down through verse 15. As the final battle in history is described for us, you've noted the environmental changes our Lord produces, the global kingdom our Lord governs, and the continual security our Lord provides. But now, here you see it, the eventual judgment our Lord assures. You pick it up now with me. You're in, you're right here, verse 12. And this shall be the plague with which the Lord will strike all the people that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot when they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. It sounds something nuclear, doesn't it, the effects of. It begins with the idea be the plague. The word plague is an interesting word. It stands out, you see, because it carries with the idea of a stroke. Not my favorite word. <laughs> but nonetheless, it's here. But this is different than the one I had. This is the final stroke. Because here it stands, and this shall be the final stroke with which the Lord will strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. And you're standing with me now at the gate, uh, and we're looking at the, all the various bullet holes that are there. And you're pondering this, and you're considering the opposition, and you're thinking about the plague and that God is saying will take place to come. How do we understand this? What we argue through the years together, you and me, is that God works on the installment plan. He takes each and every event and connects it to the next event, which connects to the next event. And so you go back to Exodus, and you're spending time there studying the plagues. And in Exodus chapter 9, you and I reach this point where the seventh plague is being described. And in verse 14, Moses is having to speak to Pharaoh about the plagues that are coming upon Egypt, which has been in opposition to the Jewish people. And Moses now evangelistically shares, and for this reason, for this time, speaking on behalf of God, I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. That is missions. That is global evangelism. And then to reiterate in verse 16 of Exodus 9, but for this purpose I have raised you up, he's saying to Pharaoh, to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You're still exalting yourself against my people. Will not let them go. And then God says, let my people go. And through the shed blood of the Lamb, they leave Egypt, you see. And now what we find is that all this is coming together 
because you take the past and you use that as a means of understanding the future. On that day, connect now Exodus with what you are now reading here in Zechariah, which is what you will read in Revelation. On that day, you're up to verse 13 of the 14th chapter here, a great panic from the Lord shall fall on them, speaking of the opposition in that final day unto the Lord, Armageddon. Notice then the vehicles that God uses to secure victory. There's the panic in verse 13. There's the mutual annihilation that comes out of verse 14, 13 and 14. Each will seize the hand of another. The hand of the one will be raised against the hand of the other. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. Here you will see here the supernatural investment upon those who are average people to rise up and fight. Even Judah will fight at Jerusalem. And what happens? For those that have studied economics, you nod your head at Adam Smith's argument for capitalism. The wealth of all the nations, the wealth of all the surrounding nations shall be collected. Gold, silver, garments, great abundance. And a plague like this plague shall fall on the horses, the mules, the camels, the donkeys, whatever beasts may be in those camps. And all this ties together and you see then the eventual judgment that our Lord assures. And this is why the second time he comes not riding on a donkey, the colt, the full of a donkey, but upon the white horse, pulling it all together. And you're back then to the conversations in Jerusalem. So you, what you're saying then is that being a Jewish follower of Jesus is not so much of a religion, but a relationship something that's internal, not just external? Yes. The missionary talked about a relationship with God, praying, reading his word, to know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, talking about forgiveness, redemption, eternal life through Jesus, going to Isaiah 53, and then the response, this is a whole new way of thinking, a whole new way of living. And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Have you put your faith in Jesus, Yeshua, and him alone for salvation? Let's stand together. Now, Father, for the one maybe watching online right now, spiritually curious, looking at things globally and yet wrestling with all that's happening to him or her personally. For the one in prior service, this service, what we're asking is in a very unique way that you break in that there will be still another sovereign movement, a movement of grace, where you reveal yourself fully, reminding us that we are sinful by nature. Jesus came to die for our sins. 
We're to put our faith and trust exclusively in him for salvation and live under his lordship, not ours. I pray, Father, if there are any that do not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that now they put faith and trust in Jesus. And for all that do know, what we want to do is to take the four significant movements we spot in these verses. Help people who are grappling with the whole issue of why are things the way they are and where does all this lead? And I pray you will lead them to Jesus. And we will give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.